Would you be seated, please? And Happy New Year to you guys. It is, it is great to be back with you. Um, if you have a Bible, please grab it and open it up to Isaiah chapter 40. Uh, we're going to be in verses 6 through 8 this morning, just a few verses, but Isaiah chapter 40 is where we're at. If you need a Bible, there's people walking by that would love to hand you one. Just slip your hand up. If you do not have a Bible, feel free to take that one home uh, with you. Uh, it is yours. Um, I'm going to read here in verse 6 of Isaiah chapter 40, and this is what it says. It says, a voice says, cry, and I said, what shall I cry? This is what you should cry. All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. God, we we just want to pray uh, in this moment that you would be very obviously present during our time in your word. God, we know that um, your word is alive and active, that it is breathed out by you, and I pray that we would experience that this morning. God, we, I, I want to pray specifically for um, uh, Barry Arnold at Cornerstone and uh, for Virgil as he is preaching at Henson this morning and all month. And I pray, God, that you would fill them with great confidence in you and what you're able to do, God, through the preaching of your word. And I pray that you would uh, really benefit those church families, God, through their preaching this morning. Um, God, we're grateful to you that we have your word. And I pray, God, that you would do something in our lives that we can only attribute to you through it this morning. And I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Um, well, you guys, uh, we are in a new decade. What just happened, right? I mean, uh, it felt like yesterday we were all worried about Y2K. Remember that? And uh, every year, I think, is a moment where we kind of feel this sense that change is possible, you know, that we have a clean slate, if you will. And, uh, you know, it's, it's always the same, though. Yesterday is always yesterday, and today is always today. And um, with Christ, we know that every day is sort of that clean slate. God's mercies are new every day. But there's something about a new year that brings that about. There's a feeling of a clean slate. But then we always simultaneously feel like time is, is passing us by, don't we? Um, we? We feel that nothing is permanent. I know, I know for me, I've been in a weird spot. I think just more reflective than usual, which says something. I'm a pretty reflective person. But um, just as we've turned into this new year, this new decade, being more reflective than usual and just thinking about, wow, what's happened in the last 10 years and what's another 10 years going to feel like and where I'm going to be. And I'm like, well, I want to be in my mid to later 40s. I'm going to have you know, kids in college. And for me, that just that feels insane. Like, how is that even a thing? And so just depending on the season of life I'm in, and maybe you feel the same way, I, I kind of wish I could just freeze time. You know, I wish I could just freeze time. In fact, I'll, I'll often say to my, my daughters or my sons, um, would you please stop growing up? You know, would you please, you know, promise me you're not, and they just, you know, argue with me about how time works and all this, and, and I say, no, would you please, you know, promise me you're going to stop growing up, and they promise me, and, um, you know, whatever, they, it, it's good. I'm, I'm happy they promised me those kinds of things, and I know that's a cheesy dad thing to say, but I'm a cheesy dad, and um, it just, it feels unavoidable to me at this point in my life. But I, I wish I could freeze time. 
I really wish I could freeze time. I wish I could make what we have going right now last forever. I wish this moment could endure. And maybe you don't tell your, da- your kids uh, cheesy dad things, um, but maybe you experience a vacation that's just wonderful, or an evening, an incredible evening with family or people you love, or, um, or maybe it was Christmas break, it was just wonderful and it's over. And uh, you look at those moments and you wish you could freeze time. I don't know what it is for you, but it's safe to say that we have an insatiable desire for certain things in our lives to endure and to last forever. And in a moment of transition or change, whether it's from a one decade to the next or from transitions like in our church's life last year or to personal life changes or transitions that you might be personally going through, We often see that so many good things in life, good things in life, don't endure and last our lifetime, let alone for generations or for all eternity. But there's at least one thing, at least one thing that God promises us will always endure. We find it in our text this morning, and it's his word. It's God's word. In light of that this morning, I want to call us as a church to not just a New Year's resolution, to not just a new decade resolution, but a lifelong resolve, really, which we need to be called to every single day. A lifelong resolve to feast on God's word and to snack on the good stuff of life and to not get those things out of order. Because if we do, which we most often, I think, do reverse those two things, when we feast on the good stuff of life, we realize every time it doesn't pay out very well. It's a really bad investment. But when you get that in the right order, it's a beautiful, life-transformative investment. And so this morning, our short few verses here that we're looking at this morning, uh, we do see this eternal perspective in verses 6 through 7. We see a sure promise that's given to us in verse 8. And finally, uh, we see this lifelong resolve that I want to call us to as we embark on this uh, new decade. Eternal perspective, a sure promise in a lifelong resolve. Uh, Verses six through seven, we saw this eternal perspective offered to us in those verses. Let's look again, briefly again. Verse six, a voice says, cry. I said, what shall I cry? What does he cry? All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. I think it's really hard Uh, to jump into the middle of a book, the Bible. That's why I'm not a huge fan of just doing a standalone message, um, but this one felt something like we really needed to do. Um, But jumping into the middle of a book is often really hard because here we find ourselves in chapter 40, which is a really huge transition in the book of Isaiah. It's a big transition um, because what we find in the first 39 chapters of this book is uh, this prophet Isaiah... And he's prophesying uh, words of confrontation, really, against God's people. Um, Israel, God's people, they've been rebellious. They've been rebellious against God's rule. They've been rebellious against the ways of their God, Yahweh. And so God used nations like Assyria, nations like the Babylonians, to purify them and to leave a remnant of people who were faithful to himself. And so now, here in this chapter, we find ourselves a couple of centuries really down the line. So a few centuries, if you will, have passed 
between chapter 39 and chapter 40, okay? And here in chapter 40, God's people are no longer being confronted, but they're being given words of comfort. And now what they're doing is they are in exile. They're in Babylonian exile. They're living in a foreign land amongst foreign ways to their ways of life. They've lost a lot of their own stuff, but God is wanting to speak words of comfort to his people in exile. And we see this in verse 1. God says what? Comfort, comfort my people says your God. So God, even after their failure, even after all their sin and their rebelliousness, God is coming to them, and he is still calling them his people. He is still identifying himself with them as their God. Through all of this, he is still coming to comfort them. I love uh, what Ray Ortland says um, here. He says, the occasion of God's renewing comfort is our failure. And I think many of us have experienced that, that the occasion where we experience God's renewing comfort is our failure, that when you and I fail, that's when the comfort that God brings, the comfort of his grace and restoration uh, is really sweet. But then we see in verse two here that it's in their exile that they've received justice, right? They've received justice for their sins, and now God is wooing them back because while they're away from Jerusalem, which is their, you know, the, the iconic city of the Israelites, right? While they're away from this place, he comes to them and he woos them by calling them what? Jerusalem. He's reminding them of their identity even when they're not in the midst of their former glory, right? And then in verse three, we see the promise that this king is going to come. We looked at this during the month of Advent, right? We see this in John the Baptist, but really that John the Baptist is paving the way for Jesus to come. But here we see in verse three, this promise that the glory of God is gonna be revealed but this is not going to be a private viewing. The entire world is going to see this, is going to see the glory of God. And how do we know this is true? How we know this is going to happen? Because God has what? The mouth of the Lord has spoken. So that's what we have here, just these words of comfort that are being spoken here to these people. But then we get to verses six or seven. And if you're anything like me, you read this. And if you're being honest, this doesn't really feel or sound initially like comfort, does it? Verses six and seven, at least on the surface, it sounds a little depressing, right? These aren't lasting things, are they? They're fading and dying, so how is this comforting? Well, the good news of comfort for God's people is that like the bloom of the flower, all people, all flesh are grass. That's the comforting message. We know that this is saying that the people are grass because it says that for us at the end of verse 7. Surely the people are grass. Uh, This most specifically means that all people who oppose God, all people who oppose God will fade and wither away just like the grass fades when God comes. We we see this understanding that this people or grass refers specifically to people who oppose God when we read the rest of Isaiah chapter 40 and really when you read the rest of the book of Isaiah. So like for example, in Isaiah chapter 40, Verse 24, we see this specifically being played out. If you look down there, in verse 23, it talks about these princes and rulers that God brings to nothing. And in verse 24, it says, scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. 
Uh, we see this imagery of grass throughout Isaiah, which should tip us off into how we're supposed to understand what's actually being said here. We see this in this imagery that this fading grass is not only people, but is referring to people who oppose God. When you read places like Isaiah chapter 28, verses 1 through 4, where the prophet describes the withering and flowering beauty of Ephraim, which was destroyed because of its pride and drunkenness. It looked great at one point, and then it's destroyed. It's grass. Isaiah 51, 12, we see this picture again that talks about the enemy that opposes God as weak like grass that withers. And so in all these examples of imagery of withering grass in Isaiah, they're all depicting people under the judgment of a powerful God and are compared to flowers that have their day in the sun and then they're not beautiful anymore. What, what does God do to these people? Well, how do they fade? Why do they not stand? What does it say? Because God blows on them just with his breath. Right? What a powerful image. Just like meditate on that for a second. What a powerful image this is. The simple breath of God is something that these really glorious, having their day in the sun people cannot stand against. It's not, um, it's not you know, God's humble weapon of choice is his breath. It's not um, his might, right, which he has. It's not his armies, which he has. It's not his wealth, which he has. It's his, his breath, right? It's, their, it's his breath that they can't stand against. Okay, well, why is this imagery here? Well, it's to comfort you. If you're one of God's people, it's to comfort you. Well, how? It's to show you that there is no need for any of God's people to fear any enemy. To fear anyone, to fear anything, right? There's no need. It's to put into perspective what you and I view as significant. Because you and I have a view of what is significant, and it's putting that into perspective. And we're being told here, basically, whatever you fear, it will ultimately fade. It will not endure. It will not last. Whatever it is that you fear... It will, it will fade. It won't endure. It will not last. It, it, it won't remain. This is the eternal perspective that we're offered here, that the people that we fear, whether they're our greatest national enemy or something, whether we fear a nation like Iran, as we've heard about this week or something, or if it's a, if it's a personal enemy, right? If it's someone who is persecuting you in your workplace or somebody that you just care way too much, whatever it is that they think about you, or if it's a group of people at your school, whether it's your, your middle school, your high school, your college, or whatever, if it's your colleagues at work, right? Those people's lives and influence and the, the fear that can come from them, right? The, the control that they bring over your life and emotions, it'll fade, it will pass. It's not ultimate. I think when we read a passage like this, we're confronted with the sobering reality that we invest way too much of our thoughts and our energies into things that just simply aren't ever meant to last. They don't endure. Um, I, I don't know if you were like me as a kid, but when I was a kid, um, I remember waking up in the middle of the night and just often being terrified. You know, it's, it's dark, and we lived in a house that in the Montana winters, you know, you know the, the heater's coming off and on, and, 
And really the floorboards, as I learned as I got older, were like, you know, restricting and contracting and it would make these sounds. And so often I'd wake up in the middle of the night and I'm like, someone's in this house, they're going to murder me, you know? And so I'd wake up just thinking that, uh, you know, in my mind. And the hard part was, is I had to run through the very place that I was sure that person was to get to my parents' bedroom. And so I would stand at the edge of my, you know, my door and I would, you know, you know, do some cost-benefit analysis of, you know, how am I going to survive? And I would bolt towards my parents' room, and I would make it, and I'd be terrified, and I would scare them, and I won't get into that, you know. But they'd be terrified, and then I would stay the night and wake up the next day, and they're like, what were you so scared about? And I was like, oh, it wasn't a big deal, you know. It was nothing now. I, you know, I don't know why I was even afraid, you know. And so as a kid, in the middle of the night, you, you know, the night plays tricks on you. You know, you have a different perspective at night, don't you? And even as an adult now, if I'm being completely honest with you, you wake up in the middle of the night, for some reason you start thinking about things, different stresses and anxieties. I might not be thinking someone's in my house, but I'm thinking about other things in life and, and I can't turn my brain off and I'm stressing out and the next day, you know, my wife might say, how'd you sleep last night? And I'll say, not very good. Oh, why not? Oh, you know, it was nothing. You know, just worrying about some stuff. But in the middle of the night, it feels so pressing. It feels so real. It feels so vivid. But what happens, that morning light dawns, and I have a whole new perspective. If I were to go into that kitchen and turn on the lights, I would see I have a bad perspective. The night is playing tricks on me, right? This passage is intended to be like the morning light for you, right? Who, who care way too much. For those of us who care way too much about what other people think about us or fear what other people will do to us so that we will see with our own eyes and realize with our hearts what I think is significant right now has an expiration date. It's meant to give us an eternal perspective on life. And this perspective, I think, gains a lot more traction as we receive the promise of verse 8, which is what? The grass withers, the flower fades. We just heard that. But there's a contrast here. There's something that doesn't. Right? The word of our God will stand forever. The contrast is very, very clear. Flowers fall, God's word stands. Right? Flowers fade, God's word remains. What God promises will happen. We, we shouldn't trust in other people solely or put our hope in them completely, for God's word is our only solid and sure source of strength. Well, what is, what is the word? Is it the entire Bible? I think the basic answer to that question is yes, but we need to learn a helpful exercise here in that sometimes reading our Bibles, the Bible interprets itself when you see other passages of Scripture. And so we see this happen in the book of 1 Peter. And so you can look over there to the book of 1 Peter. I'll put it here on the screen for you. But this is what it says in the letter of 1 Peter. It says, verse 23, chapter 1, since you have been born again. All right, that's salvation language not of perishable seed, that's stuff that doesn't last, but imperishable, stuff that endures, through the living and abiding, the remaining word of God. And then Peter pulls out Isaiah, for all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Well, what is the word? Well, it's the same, it's, except it's more clearly defined here, and what is it? 
This word is what? It's the good news that was preached to you. It's the good news about Jesus. It's the gospel, right? That's what this word is. The good news is a message to you of what Jesus has done, what he has accomplished. It's not telling you to do anything. It's just an announcement saying, this is what God has done. Do you receive it? Right? We, we know this, that the gospel is, is, is news. It is not advice. It's not coaching you to do something. It's just telling you what has been done. And somehow, when you've received this word, this word is an imperishable word, and it causes you to be born again in an imperishable kind of way, so that when God blows, it doesn't fade. You're, you're not a person who fades. You're a person who lasts. Right? It, it does a transformative work in your life, this word of God does to you. And notice here, too, if you've read the book of First Peter, you know this, but Peter, he, too, he's writing to his scattered people in modern-day Turkey who are being rejected, who are being pushed to the margins, who are being persecuted because they've received that word, because they have faith that this gospel of Jesus is true. He's teaching them how to live in a world that doesn't believe what they believe. He doesn't want them to escape that world. He wants them to live counterculturally within that world just like the people that received the book of Isaiah, right? Just like these same people. And here in 1 Peter, he's contrasting the weakness and the pitifulness of people in the world and the power that these followers of Jesus have in the strength that comes and remains in the word of God. This same word that has woken these people up with new life, that's causing to be born again is the same word that you and I have this morning. The same word. See, God's word of hope and comfort, what does it do? Well, it imparts life. It imparts life to weak and fearful people. It imparts life, you guys. If you're weak and fearful, this word will do that. See, God's word is reliable. It's imperishable. Do you see that? Verse 23, what's the seed? It's the word. What's the word? It's the good news. Guys, we hardly even have a category for this kind of stuff. Let's just be honest. Hardly, right? It says it's imperishable. It remains. Isaiah says it endures. I mean, things in our lives are just not very imperishable, are they? They are very perishable. Like all we know is perishable. It's kind of the world we live in. Uh, my wife and I have an ongoing, uh, we'll just call it a discussion, in our house about food expiration dates, okay? And the way I see it, there's really two kinds of people in this world. There's people who see that food expiration date label, and you don't eat it after that date is passed. And really, on the date, it's questionable. You know, you got to feel it out, okay? And then there's the other people in the world that are wrong, you know, that just, for one reason or another, they're, they're risking their lives eating this stuff for whatever reason, okay? And um, my wife, though, she knows that food perishes, okay? There is a limit to her generous eating of food that's past the date, just like all of us, I hope, okay? And we all know this. Like, if, if you invited me over for dinner and we got there and I was like, wow, this smells amazing, and I was like, what is it? And you're like, oh, it's just some stuff I'm cooking up that my great-great-grandmother gave to me, you know, like 100 years ago, I'd probably eat it, 
because I don't want to hurt your feelings or something like that. Um, you invited me over for dinner, but I might push back a little bit. I might question the legitimacy of what I'm eating. Um, but we know this, right? That food perishes, right? It doesn't last, does it? Let alone anything in life. I mean, if you have a chair that's 100 years old, like we're in awe of that. We're like, wow, that chair is 100 years old. Or if you live in a house that's 100 years old, we're like, wow, this is incredible. You know, we travel to other places and we see buildings that have stood for 500 years and we're just like in awe, like, wow, that is so old. Why? Because everything we know perishes. That's like what we know. But we always, for some reason, hope it won't. Always. We hardly have a category for something that lasts and endures and doesn't perish. And because of that, we buy into this understanding of how the world works, and even as it pertains to God's Word. This is partly why we have people today that view the Bible as a changing word. That Yes, it was written to a people in a specific time and place and culture, but maybe people view it as simply a cultural word, as something that changes and just gets reinterpreted over time, that somehow we can simply look at it and look at others in our culture and we go, I'm so sorry that it says that. We feel the need to apologize for it. Or maybe we're tempted to roll our eyes at parts of the Bible and we're like, gosh, Bible, you know, you're so holding on to the old days, you know? If everything around us changes and dies and has its glory and has its day in the sun, right, if that's our only experience, then you will find people who talk about the Bible like it's just one of those things. It had its day. It had its time. But our promise as we embark on a new decade is that God's word doesn't need to be apologized for. It doesn't need to be defended. It doesn't have trends or its moment in the sun. It doesn't tire. It doesn't weaken. It doesn't become invalid. It endures. It outlasts. It's imperishable. There will be cultural narratives, right? There'll be influences and things that seem to throw the Bible into the dust. But God's word will prove itself to be the truer narrative that outlasts any other narrative or idea or person that tries to control or lead in this world in ways that are contrary to God. We're bombarded, you're bombarded, right, with messages from people all over the place all the time. You're going to sit at tables, you're going to sit in conference rooms with people that will undermine the truth of God's word in exchange for something that's being promoted as truth. But if that truth that they're pressing on you isn't God's word, okay? It won't endure. It will prove one day, whether you see it or not, to be a trend and not a truth. See, the world that stands opposed to God and his word might look like it's blossoming. It might look like it's beautiful, like it's in the lead, but it'll prove to be a trend. Every generation has always experienced this. So guys, if, if this is the perspective that we are given and a promise that, that you can take to the bank, I think the question that we're confronted with then is not simply, uh, do you think this is true? And yeah, there's probably a, some group of people here, and I'm glad you're here, that might hear this and say, I don't know if it's true. And that's, I'm glad you're here. I really am. But I would bet that the vast majority of us in this room would go, yeah, I think that's true. That's the perspective I should have. God's word lasts. It's a sure promise. So that's not really the question, I don't think. 
The question is not simply, do I believe this is true, but do I love this truth? Do I love this? Not just know it. Do I love this truth? Do you love it? Your heart just wraps around it. Just wraps its arms. It's like if I had a, um, a drop cloth or something over a, something this morning and I ripped it off and it was the Mona Lisa, you know, uh, you'd have some initial questions about probably how shady I was, like how did I get that? Because um, if it was the real thing, like how would I get that? But let's just get past those questions right now. Let's just say it's the real thing, okay? It's the real thing. Uh, what are you going to do? Say I convinced you it was the real thing. Well, I bet I know what you're going to do. After church is over today, there's going to be a line, right? We're all going to want to see the Mona Lisa, right? It's, it's amazing. You're probably going to want to get a photo in front of it or something, okay? I, I'll be honest. I think for many of us, as I've thought about this this week, I think the Bible is like the Mona Lisa, okay? Everyone admires and objectively knows the Mona Lisa is great, right? It's the most famous painting in the world, and it's old. I mean, Da Vinci created it in 1503. It's been hanging in the Louvre since 1797. I mean, this thing has endured for something we would go, wow, that's an old thing, right? We know objectively this is great, and people have flocked to see it for centuries. Why? Because they love art? I don't know. Do you love art? You might say, I love art, but do you really love the Mona Lisa? Do you look at the Mona Lisa and you're like, wow, that is amazing. Most people go, why is that famous? You know? But people at one point go, wow, that's an incredible work of art, right? They loved it for what it was for some reason. But people flock to it all the time, right? They, 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 do they go and see it because they actually cherish the painting or because it's famous? Because they objectively know it's a good thing to go and see or because they love it? I'm sure some do. What I'm saying is we might know the Bible's a big deal. I mean, it's really famous. It's old, too. And so we read it from time to time. We know we should. Other people do. They're flocking to it. So I should, too. We know that people have given, even, their own real lives, like flesh and blood sort of lives, so that you and I could have a copy of it in our hands. There's people out in the world right now doing that very thing, trying to get the Bible in the hands of people, right? I don't question its value, but what's the value of the Word of God to me? Do I love the painting, or is it just famous? Do, do I love this Word? Do I love it? Here's the thing. I will only begin to cherish this perspective and treasure this promise to the extent that I don't merely love the words of God, but I love the God who speaks these words to me. And I think this will begin as I see that it's through this enduring word that I hear and receive this God who is speaking to me in an alive and active, breathing kind of way, because that's how the Bible describes itself. As I open up these pages, I'm told that God is breathing on me. That something is alive, as God is speaking, right? Do you see, this word that endures brings me to the God 
who is speaking this gospel to me. And through the word that was made flesh, I've been born again of imperishable seed so that when God's breath blows on me, I don't fade and die. I come alive forever. So we've seen a perspective we should have and a sure promise. What should, we, what should we do? How will we respond? I think based upon Isaiah 40 and 1 Peter, I don't normally end this way, but I felt compelled to this week that I think there's really two things that this perspective and promise affect in our lives right here and way beyond forever. And one is a corporate resolve and one is a personal resolve. The corporate resolve is this. Based upon the truth that we see here, we, every church should be making a corporate week in and week out resolve that we don't put our hope in Christian trends. We do not put our hope in Christian trends as if a new wave of Christianity is the silver bullet that we've all been missing. This means as a community of faith, we want to think well. We want to do our ministries well. We want to be resourceful. We want to be wise, creative even. But we don't put our ultimate hope in our creativity, into our resources, or anything else. We put our hope in the unchanging, enduring word of God. Uh, Kevin DeYoung said this. He says, in a world that prizes the new, the progressive, the evolved, we need to be reminded that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's just quoting Hebrews 13, 8 there. And since he remains the same, so does his truth, which means sometimes consistency is the better part of valor. Uh, the phrase that goes around this time of year is uh, new year, new you, right? I'm like, it'd be great if the phrase went around and it was like, new year, same God, you know? That's where our hope is, you guys. Guys, we need God to speak because when he speaks, things happen. God speaking is God acting. It's what you see all over the place in the Bible. So we remain a word-centered people trusting in the scriptures to move us and shape us. Secondly, as a personal resolve, it's the title of this message, really, that we would resolve to be people who feast on God's word and snack on the good stuff of life and really encourage each other to knock that out of order. It's true these verses are a reference primarily to the people that stand opposed to God. But generically, the references here are not merely to people, but to really all of life. And we've already, I've already tried to show you that, right? And you've agreed, right? Everything doesn't last. We know that things don't last. They fade. And if you notice how people in life that are temporary are described in verses 6 and 7 is that they have beauty. There's an attractiveness, right? There's, I mean, there's fl- they're described as flowers. Who doesn't like flowers, right? No one looks at a flower and says, you, right? They all, wow, it's beautiful. There are many things in life that may have the resemblance of a beautiful thing, but once you get into it deep enough, you find that that thing was actually very ugly, and the Bible calls that sin. But there's also many, many things in life that look good and in of themselves are good things. God has made so many, so many good things in this world, things like music, right? Things like food and friendships and romantic relationships, hasn't he? Entertainment, clothing, you name it. If it's not a sin, 
It's a good thing that God has made and is a gift that he's given, right, to his world, right? So the problem, though, is that our heart takes good things and makes them ultimate things, and we take things that were never created to find an end in, and we try to make those things our end. We pour our whole selves into them. We feast on them. But they are created by God to be a means to an end, right? They're to be enjoyed to the extent that we find our deepest joy in God through them. Right? We, we just came out of the holiday season, right? And I don't think I'm alone in saying that during the holidays, most of us tend to feast on the good stuff and snack on the best stuff for us, right? We, we feast on the good things like comfort foods and cookies and treats and desserts, and we snack on the best stuff, right? Like vegetables and whole grains and whole foods and that kind of stuff. I mean, we had a an amazing, delicious spread on Christmas Day, and it was like full of chips and dip and crackers and cookies, and there was like this lone tray of vegetables, you know? And even that had ranch dip it in just to mask the pain of eating <laughs> the vegetable, you know? And I'm, I'm, you know, just enjoying this spread and once in a while just throwing a carrot in my mouth for good measure, you know? And I'm feasting on that stuff. At the end of the day, you're like, ah, the payout wasn't that great, you know? I don't feel good now. Right, we, we, we switch our eating habits during the holidays from feasting on the best stuff to snacking on the good stuff. And we feast on the good stuff and snack on the best stuff. And we often get this out of order in our relationship with God as well. We feast on the good stuff of life, the good that he's made, and we snack on him and his word. But when we do this, you know this, right? You're left wanting, right? You're left discouraged, because the things that we feast on to ultimately satisfy us like we were hoping they would, they don't last, do they? I mean, no one gets to January and is like, I feel great. We're all like, I need a cleanse, you know? And we call it saduary, you know? What, here's the thing. What impact would it have on your life? Just dream with me. What impact would it have on our church? What impact would it have on our city? What impact would it have on the ends of the earth if we were people who in a lifelong resolve kind of way feasted on Jesus and his word and we learned how to snack on the good stuff and not get that out of order? I think it would change our perspective. It might change what we spend our lives living for, probably change the people around us, and it would probably change you and me. Because if what you feast on food-wise shapes your physical features, what your soul feasts on shapes your whole being. So now we get the invitation to moment by moment and day by day feast on God's word knowing we do it because we know it endures forever. That's why we do it. We let it shape our whole being and it satisfies our soul. Because in feasting on God's word, we come face to face with Jesus, the word. And as the imperishable seed of God's word now abides in you, when the breath of God blows on you, you come alive. As we abide in him through his word abiding in us. 
I want to end with this prayer. I'm using it as a prayer of Jeremiah 15. It says, your words were found, and I ate them. And your words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart. For I have been called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. Let's pray. Lord, I, I, I want to ask this morning that we would view your word not as something we should read, but something, God, that we want to feast on. God, something that we, we see brings us face to face with you, the living God. God, I'm so grateful for your word, and I pray that you would awaken within us a desire for it, because we know, God, that through it we become alive. And so, God, we make us a grateful people who love your word for your glory's sake here in our city all the way to the ends of the earth. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, guys, we're going to rise to our feet now and go into our time of response. Uh,